I'm Timothy Neal. And I'm Cami O'Dally. And you're listening to another episode of Conversations in Anthropology. A podcast about life, the universe and anthropology. We're brought to you with support from the Faculty of Arts and Education at Deakin University and in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. to the second episode in our series of short, sharp, virtual conversations on crisis and digital methods. The series will be running through May with an episode a week. It's a departure from our usual program of a podcast a month, but this felt like the right way to go as part of processing, as we all are, what the COVID-19 pandemic means for us and for each other. So, here, our host Tim Neal is in conversation with Jonah Lipton. Jonah is a postdoctoral researcher based at the Centre for Africa at the London School of Economics and at the Economic and Social Research Council's Centre for Public Authority and International Development. He's interested in youth, family life, informal economies, global health, humanitarianism and crisis. You can find his writing in several anthropology journals and in The Guardian and he tweets at Jonah underscore Lipton. Jonah's research stems from long-term ethnographic fieldwork in a neighbourhood of Freetown in Sierra Leone. He was actually there in 2014 when the Ebola outbreak occurred. He describes his memory of this time, how faraway talk of a virus moved closer, becoming not just unavoidable but a state of emergency, and what this meant for ordinary life in Freetown, for the people he was working with and living with, for their work and home lives and for his research, all of which ended up conceding in various ways to Ebola's devastating effects. He also shares his thoughts on what the end of the outbreak looked like and felt like, how it shifted, what was enabled, and what endures. And so did you, when you set out on your PhD fieldwork, what kind of anthropologist did you think you were? Because from what I understand, you, you didn't think you were going to be studying a, an outbreak. That's absolutely right. I came out thinking of myself basically as a, a kind of social and economic anthropologist. Um, so I kind of, uh, I went out kind of to do a research project um, focusing on, on youth, on young men in particular, and looking at kind of informal economies based in an urban neighborhood. So the kind of informal economies of families and informal work in this in a neighborhood context. What, what kinds of informal economies, uh, you know, are, are the focus of, of life in Freetown? Well, uh, a lot of my uh, kind of interlocutors I was close to were working in transport. So they were kind of taxi drivers and motorbike taxi drivers. There were also market traders as well. Um, and I, I went there and I was living in this with actually with a taxi driver living in a, in a neighborhood and at the beginning, I was sort of going out and trying to, to um, meet taxi drivers and sort of figure out what was going on with that kind of part of the economy. Um, and then gradually, the, the focus changed of the research because I realized how kind of crucial the, the home and, and, and the domestic space and the, the family and the neighborhood was in, in the lives of young men, um, which I thought was something that kind of isn't often accounted for um, in, in African contexts. And so when the Ebola outbreak began, I mean, was there any thought, I guess, I would think perhaps it was time to go home. You know, what, what was your kind of decision making at that time? 
Yeah, it, it was a kind of a, a surreal situation to be in, and it was one that kind of unfolded in a gradual way. So my immediate instinct was actually to stay, um, was sort of happening in a gradual way. Uh, I remember encountering the first rumors of the, of the virus across the border in, in neighboring Guinea, um, which most people kind of wrote off as being rumors. And then they later turned out to be accurate. You know, a couple months later, there was the declaration of the state of emergency. And then, you know, over the course of the next few months, there was a kind of very large scale international intervention. One of the things that was tricky for me was um, that I had actually already been there for quite a long time. I, I was there for something like eight or nine months before the outbreak. Um, I felt like I had been developing these quite close relationships with people in the neighborhood that I was living with, uh, living in with my hosts and, and my, um, my friends and neighbors. Um, and we weren't really seeing um, actual cases of Ebola for a long time. So there was a feeling of okay, we're in the middle of this big crisis and the world is watching us and, and, and people are very aware of that. Um, but at the same time, um, we don't know anyone who's caught the virus. For a long period of time, I was actually quite um, hesitant to leave um, and I ended up staying for, for uh, quite a while. In a health crisis like that, do you feel it's almost inevitable that your research kind of becomes overtaken? There's a kind of immediate pressure kind of or, um, or a sort of an immediate transformation in which people's focus starts to change. Um, the people that you're working with, um, your interlocutors, uh, and also you know, people uh, around the world uh, who are kind of commenting on this crisis, um, and people kind of all strata of society. So there's a sort of shift in focus of people that you feel you need to account for. Um, and this is something that certainly happened to me that um, you know, the work that I, I am now doing is all about the Ebola outbreak and uh, the book I'm writing is about Ebola and the articles and so on. But I think below that is actually, at least in my case, there was actually a lot of continuity. Uh, the, the neighborhood that I was living in remained the same. You know, my field site was actually the same. The relations that I built remained the primary interlocutors for me. And it was those people's lives that I was most closely following and participating in. Just hearing you speak now and then thinking about the article uh, that you wrote about burials, uh, makes me wonder if, yeah, how your interlocutors' lives were bound up by this, because I'm aware, like, the process around death required these new regulations and new teams of people who were now engaged in kind of regulating the, the business of death. So I suppose you just kind of follow people as they as they move and, move and converge around this crisis. Were people, you know, were these taxi drivers' lives now very much in, engaged in, I guess, the crisis? It's actually one of the uh, of the young men that I was closest to, who's actually uh, was a taxi driver, um, was recruited in the um, in the Ebola response, as were the, a lot of young people actually. Um, and he was uh, uh, working as a, a driver in one of the burial teams. So these were the teams that were formally established to perform all burials uh, during the crisis. So uh, I actually um, started continued following him and and would. Um, once every week or two, um, follow the burial team that he was part of um, um, about their day. Um, and that provided some of the material for that article. Um, and then the other material was actually um, through the community, through the neighborhood that I was living in, um, and observing the ways that my neighbors um, dealt with death during the outbreak, including actually there was a death um, in the house that I was living in. So how does that change you as a researcher? Uh, interacting with that context. I mean, did you have to practice what we're now calling social distancing, but many anthropologists want to call physical distancing? 
Yeah, I mean, there were some uh, there were some differences between between COVID nineteen and and Ebola. Ebola was was much harder to catch um, than COVID nineteen, but it was actually more deadly uh, generally if you caught it. Uh, there were lockdowns during the outbreak, but the, the lockdowns didn't tend to last quite as long as the lockdowns here are lasting. Um, so there was kind of more movement possible. And I basically personally tried to try to find the right balance of taking measures seriously, as I felt actually a lot of my neighbors were, and at the same time, um, carrying on the research. You know, how has your research kind of been informing your interpretation of the COVID-19 crisis? Well, I think one of the things um, that I've been thinking about in terms of COVID-19 is thinking about this combination that I also found during Ebola, which was a combination between um, a, a kind of really exceptional and extraordinary time, a time of crisis, which is sort of inescapable and, and sort of undeniable on the one hand. And at the same time, um, the fact that there's a lot of ordinary social stuff that's going on. COVID-19, I think, is uh, really remarkable because um, so many people globally are now spending time at home. Um, they're spending time with their families. They're working from home. They're, they're, they're working in new ways. And I think actually um, a lot of the sort of classic areas of, of anthropological interest and, and inquiry have almost a sort of renewed relevance now. Uh, and that's definitely something that I discovered uh, during Ebola as well, that there was um, anthropology's interest in, in the life course, um, in kinship, in, in the household uh, and in rituals. All these areas that anthropologists have been writing about for a long time have a kind of real relevance to understanding people's responses to COVID-19 now when these spheres are, are, are uh, demonstratively um, so important for people. Uh, this was something that I found particularly interesting and significant during the Ebola outbreak was the performance of burial ritual. It was during kind of deaths in the, uh, during the outbreak, many of which were not actually caused by the Ebola virus, that um, I felt that kind of people had to confront, c- confront what it was to be in a crisis in a very heightened form because there was a conflict between kind of public health measures, which very strongly emphasized performing burials in safe ways and in new ways um, on the one hand. And, and on the other hand, um, there were the kind of obligations of, of traditional burial practice, which are kind of very um, important in the ways that people go about creating good death and, and social order, um, especially in a time of uncertainty. Um, but I also um, noticed sort of um, extraordinary um, abilities of people to adapt their practices um, in ways that to some extent fulfilled both of those um, criteria. And in doing so, they often um, were drawing upon very specific kind of local histories. Um, they were drawing, in, in the case of, of Freetown, they were drawing on, um, on a long history of international intervention that um, goes back to the slave trade and, and goes back to colonialism. And these were kind of informing the ways that people were negotiating and navigating burials and, and the expectations of, of a, during another intervention. I was wondering about the the social memory when the crisis lifts, whether it lifts for different people differently, I suppose, uh, and how if you have any kind of observation on 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 what the end of the crisis in Sierra Leone looked like and how it was differently experienced. Yeah, that's a great question, um, and it, it's something that that I've been thinking about. You know, sometimes people um, ask me, you know, what are the legacies of Ebola? Um, sort of my view on it is quite complex because. Um, there's a lot of aspects of, of life in Sierra Leone that seem to be quite similar to how they were beforehand. Um, I think a lot of the challenges that people face remain um, in terms of 
poor health system and uh, a, a very difficult economy and and so on. That there are a lot of um, ongoing um, problems that have kind of continued. But I think uh, although the sort of the, the, those kind of structures are still sort of in place for people who actually lived through the crisis, it was it was an incredibly significant time. Um, it was very significant for them in in sort of reorienting their relationships with each other, um, their relationships with family, for example. And this is something I really observed among young people in particular, that the, the crisis uh, represented a period where they could actually go about um, kind of starting families and entering into different phases of their lives in a social sense um, in ways that were actually difficult for them to do beforehand. These crises are extremely sort of transformative for the people who lived through them. Are there particular kinds of um, anthropological theory or thought that have been coming up for you as, as useful for understanding the current pandemic? Yeah, um, I, I think uh, what I am drawn to, um, I guess, um, is two kind of areas of theory. And uh, this is, these are uh, areas of theory that I'm also drawn to in my work um, on Ebola. One of those is, is sort of a, a, a kind of classic area of anthropological sort of analysis um, and here I'm talking about theories of of the home of the household um, theories of kinship theories of the life course these kind of uh, these sort of areas that anthropologists have long sort of attended to um, I think have a sort of renewed relevance now um, in part because uh, we're seeing that these social arenas are central to um, people's responses and everyday experiences of of the, the outbreak people are spending a lot of time at home People are connecting with their families in new ways. People are working in new ways. Some of the other theory that I'm drawn to are, are kind of anthropological theories of crisis as well. There's a kind of tradition in, in particularly the, from the sort of Manchester school, um, people like Gluckman and his followers who are working in Southern Africa. They were, um, you know, really fascinated by crisis as a kind of opportunity for understanding uh, kind of larger social forces that sort of govern society, that during a crisis, things that are normally hidden um, or taken for granted become revealed to both the anthropologists and, and participants alike. So I think that um, this is a very interesting area of theory to think about during a crisis. And then there's also a, a kind of another th way of thinking about crisis, which is the opposite, that actually during a crisis, um, it's, uh, it's actually a time where um, we're, we're more limited and, uh, you know, there's, there's more impositions of top-down power and and this is sort of the thinking of crisis that goes along with sort of thinking through state of emergencies critically. Seems like a perfect moment to ask you about whether or not this has revealed anything or the hidden has become revealed in relationship to anthropology. Does this particular moment tell us anything about the position or state of anthropology? I think during a, a crisis like this, um, there is a, there's a kind of um, potential for anthropology to sort of demonstrate its relevance. Um, I think there's a tension here. I think on the one hand, it's, it, it's, it's sort of encouraging the anthropologists are being asked to sort of contribute to these responses. It can also be limited and it can also kind of risk compromising um, some of the sort of core tenets and approaches that make anthropology what it is. So uh, during the Ebola outbreak, um, I was involved with other anthropologists in, in various platforms um, of, of anthropologists who try to sort of advise authorities involved in the international response um, on areas of kind of social and cultural life. And we wrote kind of briefings um, about things like um, burial practices and, and sort of everyday economies. One of the problems I think with that was that there was a sort of reduction of 
of uh, the much much more sort of textures and nuance and complex and and constantly changing idea of kind of culture that we work with in our normal work. And it was being sort of reduced to a, a bullet point form that was sort of static and reduced. Um, and while it was sort of great to be to be um, having some influence and, and uh, over the response and to hopefully be reflecting the concerns of our interlocutors, um, it, it still felt um, it still felt somewhat limited. So I would I guess I would um, encourage sort of anthropologists to, to to sort of think about how they can respond to the current situation, um, but also to to sort of not lose sight of the kind of ongoing approaches and, uh, and, and ongoing areas of interest which either do or will um, speak to this crisis um, uh, as they sort of mature and develop. So do you have any uh, advice, I suppose, or, or lessons you'd like to convey? Would, would your work have been possible? You mentioned before Ebola was more deadly but less contagious. Would it be possible to have done your your research with a more you know in a more contagious context i think it um i think it depends on what stage you are at with your research um if you are already kind of embedded in a field site if you're uh and, and then you're you're kind of undergoing this crisis you're, un- you're you're going through lockdown um uh with with the people that you're you're actually working with in your research then um i think there's a, a, a lot of mileage in in maintaining those relationships and continuing your work I think at the same time, you're right that there is uh, an issue with, with contagion. And if you're not already in your field site, um, uh, for example, then I think um, you kind of might have to undertake a different approach. Um, and I think that um, in that regard, there's actually, um, I think there's a great deal of potential to, to sort of work with um, the sort of new technologies that people are using now, um, um, social um, media and um, Skype and Zoom are kind of becoming very dominant ways that people are going about their daily life and going about work and and are forums where socializing and socialization is actually really happening. Um, and so I think there is a potential for anthropologists to use those vehicles um, in, in their own research as well. Mm. Was that part of your work in Sierra Leone? Or has it become part of it? Uh, I suppose... Uh, for the bulk of my research, I I did rely on kind of on quite classic uh, methodologies of sort of participant observation and, and writing field notes and so on. Um, but uh, especially for periods when I wasn't there and there was a break in my field work from my um, doctoral field work, um, I did keep in touch with people um, over WhatsApp, for example. And there there was actually a neighborhood, uh, and there still is a neighborhood uh, WhatsApp group. Um, in which a lot of the sort of young people that uh, I'm, I'm, I work with there are, are part of, um, and so these things are useful to sort of to sort of keep in touch with with what's going on. But for me, it's always the, the primacy, I suppose, has always has always been on the kind of the face to face work. How large how large is a neighbourhood WhatsApp group? Mm. Uh, <laughs> I think there's there's probably uh, like 150 people on it or something like that, maybe 100 people. Yeah, <laughs> hard to keep up with, I imagine. So. Yeah, yeah. I'm in the middle of an ethnographic project, and I was spending five, six days a week uh, with my interlocutors. And like many people, I've just suddenly had to transition to a digital ethnographer. Have you have you found that your kind of approach has changed um, in the time that you've been doing it? I think. Online worlds give you access to very different parts of people's lives. And in some ways, as a researcher, it's, there are certain advantages. People 
express themselves in text, you know, uh, and people are documenting their lives for you uh, to a certain extent, that interactions become much more formalized. And so then that necessarily uh, changes what um, people put forward and, and how they put it forward. I think that kind of has a, a different complexion doing this kind of research um, in, in, a, in a time where kind of everyone is, uh, is using these platforms and adapting to the way they socialize. And, and these platforms are actually very central to where they socialize. So Jonah, a kind of a big final question. Often uh, we ask our guests uh, to speculate on the future of the Anthropos. And so we're wondering, what do you think this moment kind of portends for our social, cultural, political, or economic worlds? And I, I kind of see uh, two sort of broad forces at play. I think one of them is that there are sort of things that were previously sort of unthinkable that are becoming sort of more thinkable now. And particularly things that many people would think of as being sort of progressive or, or more equitable. And we're seeing that, I think, around discussions with um, universal basic income, for example. Um, in the UK, uh, I, I think where I'm, I normally live, um, uh, I think the, the NHS, the National Health Service, is a kind of key example of that. In the, in the election um, in 2019, in December, uh, there was uh, the NHS, saving the NHS from privatization and from cuts was the cornerstone of the Labour um, campaign. And that was not politically popular at the time, as the evidence, uh, as evidenced by the election results in which Labour lost. Um, and I think now that's it, it, it has a whole different complexion in, in the way that people are, are seeing the value of, of publicly funded health systems. Um, there's also, I think, the risk of going the other way around in the um, uh, the powers that um, established authorities have during emergencies become kind of reinforced in a long term way. And we've seen that before, um, where kind of state of emergencies uh, end up being formed for a particular reason, but but staying on and, and sort of abused, if you will. Um, so I think that, that there's, there are these sort of broad questions going on. Um, but one of the things I would say that I think anthropologists are, um, are really positioned to sort of attend to is also at the same time, the sort of more intimate stuff. Um, there's a lot going on for people in their intimate lives with the, with their, um, the relationships of, of those close to them, with their families, with the people that they're in lockdown with, with their colleagues. They're all kind of undergoing these sort of transformations. Um, and I think attending to these, these sort of more intimate processes at the same time as thinking about these, these really global big questions is going to be um, very critical for, for anthropologists, for us as a discipline. Thank you very much, Jonah. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to another episode of Conversations in Anthropology, a podcast about life, the universe, and anthropology. This podcast is produced by David Water-Giles, Timothy Neal, Cameo Daly, Maithali Maher, and Matt Barlow, and made in partnership with the American Anthropological Association. To learn more about this podcast, find us on Twitter. We're at AnthroConvo. And don't forget to rate and review us on your chosen podcast platform. 